Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this afternoon's lunch hour lecture. We're pleased to have you all with us today. My name is Danishta Patel, and I am a workplace consultant at CBRE and graduated with my master's at UCL in psychology of education. I have the pleasure of chairing today's lecture, Leading Through Crisis, Five Things We Have Learned About Organizations and People, given by Dr. Zachary Walker, who is an associate professor at the UCL Institute of Education. Zachary serves as the academic head of learning and teaching for the Department of Psychology and Human Development. He is also a senior fellow with the Higher Education Academy. In the last three years, Zachary has worked with business, educators, and policymakers in more than 30 countries on issues of diversity and inclusion, instructional reform, and inclusive pedagogies. We will be taking questions via Slido. Information to join the Slido are in the event information you received and should also be visible on the screen currently. The Slido code is LHL Autumn. That's L-H-L-A-U-T-U-M-N. Now to hand over to the speaker, and I hope you enjoyed the lecture. Thank you, Danishta. Uh, really appreciate that. And hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Zachary, and I'm going to share some slides here in a second. Uh, please do um, con contribute to our Slido. I love questions. They're important and they kind of make things go. So thank you so much for being here. Um, we are gonna talk about leading through crisis today. And you can see the Slido code right under there that, uh, that Danishta mentioned. I am Zachary Walker, that's my Twitter handle as well. Uh, and so let's get started. Um, interestingly enough, I actually, uh, January of this year, I was on the same stage, except for there was actually a literal stage with people there, uh, giving a talk, um, a lunchtime lecture called Teaching and Leading Generation Z. And at that talk, we talked about quite a few things. And uh, some of those uh, included what Generation Z has seen in their lifetime. And so these are just a few of the major events that we talked about that have happened since 1996, which is when Generation Z was born. So 9-11, um, bombings in Syria, uh, crashes, refugee crisis, global climate change. And one of the things we talked about at that January talk was that all this happens in a minute. And the difference between now and other generations, because we know that other things, bad things or hurtful things have happened in other generations, is that now everyone carries this around in their pocket. Right. Um, and this is exactly what happens in the Internet Minute. So people, especially kids growing up with this, have always had access to this. Uh, so we talked about leadership. So what kind of leadership has uh, has this generation of, of people coming up seen? Um, and again, I'm not going to say all their names, but uh, I think this is a fairly representative of some of the leaders that uh, that this generation has seen. We know that because of that, when you talk to Generation Z, political leaders are the least likely to be role models for them. Uh, many times they're seen as dishonest, selfish, argumentative. And dysfunctional leaders tend to result in a dysfunctional country. Um, so with that, we talked a little bit about what does this generation do and, and how is their mindset different based on some of the events that have happened but also based on the leadership that they've seen. And we talked about the idea of Tetris, right? And, and uh, many of us remember Tetris growing up. It was a game where things fall from above and your job is just to figure out where they fit. Uh, it's still quite a fun game to play, but um, how our education systems and, and many times our organizations work like Tetris or literally things just come down from above 
as an employer, as a student, I'm supposed to catch it and put it in its place. That was my whole job. But the difference is that this generation, Generation Z, um, they grew up with Minecraft. And what happens in Minecraft? Minecraft, you literally have a blank canvas and you can pull things from any direction and you work from with people from around the world in certain cases, people you may not know. It's not top down, it's everywhere around is where you get your information and your tools. And so the, uh, the idea here, that, and this comes from the book, uh, New Power, which I highly recommend, is that the way that people approach work is changing, the way that our young people approach is changing. And again, all this was things that we talked about at the start of this year in 2019. And, and we, we talked about one of the big things that's becoming more and more evident and visible among young people is this idea that they have an inalienable right to participate. And so with that, we asked some questions. How does this change our learning in our workplaces, right? And we came up with four things that we talked about. Number one, health and wellness. Uh, that we had to do more about health and well-being, right? That that was critical as we move forward in our workplaces and in our schools, that we we're much more conscientious of health and wellness. The second thing that we talked about was this idea of commuting. I don't know if any one of us uh, on this call remember what this was even like, but we talked about the idea because of this and in the focus on health and wellness, uh, flexible workspaces. What would that look like if more organizations went to flexible workspaces? Now, remember, this is things we were talking about in January, right? The third thing we talked about was how people were going to adjust to flexible workspaces. And if you look at the bottom quote on the right, I'm not going to read them all, but the bottom one, that's how millennials and Generation Zers are playing the game. It's not about jumping up titles, but moving into better work environments, right? And so this was really, really critical even before this year happened. We talked about the ideas of neurodiversity and how we know the research is quite clear that neurodiversity is a competitive advantage and that diversity as a whole is a competitive advantage. And then the fourth thing we talked about was collective intelligence. And uh, based on the book of Superminds, how uh, allowing everyone to contribute to problems is really, really helpful as we move forward. So all that was what we talked about January 21st of this year. And by the way, that seems like three years ago, much less just a few months ago. Um, because what happened is 2020 happened, right? And um, obviously, everything got thrown into even more of, of um, a catastrophic situation. We've seen the numbers for COVID, uh, Black Lives Matter, the movement since George Floyd's murder. And this has not just happened in the UK or in the US, obviously, this has taken place around the world as Danishto knows. So I've had to add some things to that first slide. I've had to add things more that we've seen even more of the global warming crisis. Uh, I've had to add numbers, worldwide numbers on what this generation of young people have lived through. I've had to add the fact that this is not just about uh, the hard science of COVID and, and, and kind of the the physical toll that takes, but the emotional and the social toll that it takes for many of our diverse colleagues. So <clears throat> when you think about that, if we go back and we look at why all this is so important and why some of it is even possible is because of how we use technology. I'm not gonna talk a lot about technology, but I think it's important to just point out one thing. I've updated the, the, the graph there. You can see it there on the right-hand side of what happens in the internet minute this year. 
And there's one big thing that was not on uh, the list in 2019, but is on the list now. If you look at the very bottom in kind of a teal color, TikTok. TikTok was not even represented in 2019 on this, this graphic, and it's fully represented now. And I'm sure that all of us listening to this have either participated in or are quite aware of the power of TikTok. So <clears throat> I love this slide. Uh, this, is a, this is a picture from down at Brighton. And, and I don't know if you can read it, but what it actually says is anyone for a game of Tetris? Because this is literally what has happened in 2020, right? Whether we were in this old model of Tetris or whether we were already adapting to the Minecraft world, uh, everything has just been thrown apart. And what has happened, obviously, is that people have looked to leaders to help lead through this. And um, some of the research that we have from just this year that has just come out this year is that 75% of UK organizations report a deficit of leadership skills. This one's even more telling, 71% report a lack of belief in their leadership. This is this year's data. And so when you think about the things we've gone through in 2020, and you look at three-fourths of people report there's a huge deficit in leadership or they don't believe in their own leadership, where does that leave us? Uh, one thing is clear, whatever history makes of this year, it will be recorded as a colossal supernova interrupting human existence in every conceivable way. So again, when we think about leaders, when we think about those who are leading organizations, whether that's businesses or schools or um, nonprofits or universities, and um, you know, I work in a university obviously and, and have a little bit of a leadership position here, but I also work with um, corporate clients quite a lot and we talk about leadership all the time. So this is something that's quind of near and dear to my heart. Um, I want to talk broadly. There, it says there were five things. I couldn't help it. I added another. Uh, and to be honest with you, I'll probably add a, a few more by the end. Uh, to give you a little, a little hint, at the very end, I'm going to summarize by going through 18 points. So I can't stop at five. I can't even stop at six. So forgive me. Uh, but these six things, I think, can broadly kind of broadly categorize the things that we have to do as leaders and that um, we've seen in some cases a real failure of this year. And in some cases, we've seen some really good examples as well. And I'll try to highlight a little bit of both. So number one, prepare. Uh, if you look at some of the preparation we've seen this year, it's quite evident that people were not prepared for this. And to be honest, we could easily say, oh, well, how would we know a pandemic is coming? Uh, I've actually got some research on that and I'll show you in a second. But it's one of the things, one of the leaders that I interviewed said, you know, uh, if you haven't learned this in 30 years and you, you don't know how to lead, you're not gonna learn this in two hours, right? And one of the things that I do on the side is I run some book clubs for, for organizations. And to be honest with you, I am dismayed at the amount of people, who, leaders who aren't reading. They just don't read. They don't keep up with, with change management. They don't keep up with these things. And it's critical. And this brings me to, my, many of you may have heard of, of Dr. Heimlich, the Heimlich maneuver, when someone is choking. Um, interesting story about Henry Heimlich is that uh, he was in a care home just four years ago in 2016 and he was 96 years old and the woman next to him was 89 and they were having lunch together and she started choking uh if you're going to choke it would be nice to have dr heimlich by your side right and he stood up and he performed the heimlich maneuver on her interestingly enough he was 96 years old he had never had to actually do it before 
So uh, it's interesting the fact that he came up with this and he understood it and he had trained hundreds and thousands of people and it's, it's, a, it's a maneuver known around the world, but he himself had never had to actually do it. And I think one of the things that's important is that we oftentimes say, oh, well, you know, I'll deal with that when I get there. But there are certain things we have to be prepared for ahead of time, right? And when you think about pandemics, for the last 15 to 20 years, since the, the 2002-2004 SARS outbreak, the WHO, the World Bank have warned over and over again, they've warned governments, they've, they've warned businesses about the risk of global pandemics in 2007. So we're now we're talking 13 years ago, the WHO declared the pandemic of influenza or something like it, something similar, the most feared security threat because of its ability to thread easily between humans. And they actually just two years ago in 2018, there was a contingent that studied government's readiness for pandemics and showed quite clearly that it was abysmal that people weren't ready. Now, again, this talk is not just about governments, but it is important to think about leadership. And if you're in charge of a large organization, how can you be looking to what could potentially be coming? Hopefully, we won't have more of these things, but the probability is we will. In fact, if you look at some of the data right now, there are already two very deadly strands that are that are spreading right now through Europe and through Asia that are not COVID related. They're completely different viruses. So we've got to be prepared moving forward. And I think it's important that we think about preparing. Online teaching. Um, I taught my first online class in 2005 and at the university level, so many people struggled with, oh, we've got to put everything online now. Uh, does anyone know out there? And again, I can't see you, so I'm hoping that you'll just play along. Uh, raise your hand to yourself. If you're in your living room, you've got kids crawling on you, just raise their hand too. Uh, when was the first online class offered? Does anyone want to take a guess? It was 1984. So almost 40 years ago, the first online class was offered. Now, obviously, uh, that was a very, very uh, entry-level class, and only certain people had computers at the time. But as early as 2002, MIT started offering online courses. So, these, uh, so we've known that this can be done for a long, long time, almost 20 years, and yet still universities were not prepared with infrastructure. And individual leaders oftentimes weren't prepared to make that change because they were so comfortable with the old way. But again, if we're looking and we're preparing, we're going to know that. Now, the third thing I want to talk about here is inequality. In attitudes, 26% of the British population report being a little or very prejudiced against other races. In birth, Black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. Five times more likely to die. Policing and criminal justice. Black people are nine times more likely to be stopped and searched in the UK. If as leaders, we weren't prepared this, then we weren't paying attention because inequality is not new. Online teaching is not new. The threat of a pandemic is not new, right? And it's important that we have to be paying attention to these things. If you wanna look at the, uh, uh, within uh, the professorial level in higher ed, again, talk about inequality. There are 21,400 professors approximately in the UK. Uh, 18,000 of those are white people. Uh, 2,000 uh, designate themselves as other. There are 1,600 Asian professors and 140 black professors, less than 1% of all of our professors in the UK are black. And so again, 
if we say that we weren't prepared to think about inequality or we didn't know, that's on us, right? And I love this, this quote uh, by Dr. Fishoff. You'll often hear leaders say they didn't have time to respond effectively in an emergency, but if you didn't have time, you didn't do your job. Your job is to be ready to know your audience and to get them clear and accurate information about what's going on. We have to prepare better as leaders. We have to look, we have to make time to think ahead. We have to make time for strategy. That has to be one of our main roles as leaders is not to get caught up in the day-to-day -day management of stuff, but to look ahead. So the second thing, uh, people are the job, right? And I think this is really, really important. Uh, the biological impact of COVID brings to the fore that beyond our ideological class and gender differences, we share a human form which bleeds alike when it's pricked and heals by the same means. As a leader, your job is not any of the other things that you can get drawn into. Your job is the people. And that's the most important thing to remember. And oftentimes, if you look at kind of organizational structures like board of directors on big companies, they often talk about three legs, right? Kind of three legs of a stool. One is financial solvency. You've got to obviously make sure that the company is financially engaged. Two is this idea of governance. Are we following laws? And what does our management structure look like? And how are we making sure that we're, we're um, legally sound? But the third leg is often kind of left up to each organization. Sometimes that's operational efficiency. Sometimes that's innovation. But why isn't that leg our people? Why isn't that third leg making sure that we're taking care of our people? Because once you get to crisis situations, as we've all seen, our efficiency goes out the window. Our innovation goes out the window. What has to happen is our people have to step up, right? And so we have to remember that our job as leaders is our people. This is not working from home. This is working in a crisis at home. So the whole WA fetch thing, working from home is untrue because working from home means I can go down to the coffee shop and have a meeting there. It means I can go do other things. This is working at home in a crisis. And that is a very, very different deal. And one of the things we as leaders have to be prepared for, and we're already seeing this is the time of mourning that some of our employees are going to have, right? Some will be mourning because they want things the way it was. Others are going to be mourning because they know that it's going to probably go back to somewhat similar to the way it was. And they really like it right now. But we have to make space for that. And one of the things um, that you see in this study, uh, uh, my colleagues, Carrie Wong, and she's going to get mad because I didn't put all of the other colleagues on there that participated in this, but there were like 13 people that she cavaliered into this amazing global COVID study. Highly encourage you to go check it out. Um, one of the things that they found out is that young people, uh, ages 18 to 24 and then 25 to 34 are worse off compared to all other age groups. And this is for two reasons. Families with young children are reported to be the most chaotic as you're trying to work from home. Um, but then there's also those who are single and living alone in small spaces. And they have the lowest, the, the lowest mental health. And uh, I was speaking about this with another one of my leader friends and they said, you know, isolation is proving to be a worse disease than COVID. And so I think it's really important that, again, we understand our people. We think about the mourning they're going to go through. We think about what they're doing at home. And I'm going to get to a second part of this really important, but it's not just important that we think about them, okay? I want us to really focus on this a little bit later. I'm going to come back to this. But Brené Brown says um, leaders must either invest a reasonable amount of time in attending to the fears and feelings or squander an unreasonable amount of time trying to manage ineffective and unproductive behavior. And I think this is a really good point. You're going to have to spend time one way or the other. How you choose to do it as a leader 
working with these feelings now, engaging with this, having these conversations now, or later coming back and trying to repair is up to you. But we really need to think about it as leaders, right? So uh, COVID has taught us uh, how agile we can be. I mean, if you think about our situation at the university level and many businesses, literally over weekends, people put their whole courses online, right? Um, and I had a colleague who we were basically locked down on Friday. Uh, on Monday, her face-to-face -face course was starting and it was supposed to be face-to-face -face for two full weeks. She did it all over line, online over the weekend by herself. And I was talking to her as we were talking through and putting together some strategies. And one of the things she said is she said, you know, COVID-19, the kick in the ass we all needed, right? And the thing that's kind of funny about that is she was talking about it because of the online part of it. But what has proven, again, is that we can be quite agile when we need to be. As organizations, we can be quite nimble. And so we don't have any excuses as leaders. When we say, oh, well, I don't know if we can do that. That's going to take time, the whole thing. We don't have any excuses. We can see how much we can change, right? The problem is that progress is often an excuse for complacency. So, oh, well, you know, we're working on our diversity initiatives. We're working on our diverse pipeline to get more people into to senior leadership positions. We often use progress as an, well, you should see how it was five years ago. We're so much better off, right? But we can be better than that. And we have an obligation to be better than that as leaders. Uh, we have an obligation to be just as agile when it comes to our people as we are when it comes to our technology. And I think this is really, really, really important, okay? So um, I wanna go back to just uh, the Slido real quick. Please remember the code is at the bottom of that slide, LHL Autumn. If you have questions, concerns, ideas, disagreements, funny jokes, uh, anything that you wanna put in there, we'd happy. I'm happy to address the hard stuff too, because I think that's important. Um, but so our first thing, right, is we have to prepare better as leaders. The second thing is we have to realize our job is the people. And this is the third thing. Part of realizing that our job is the people is promoting on people skills. Let's look real quick at global leadership. 7% of the government leadership positions in the world are held by women. And yet four of the top 10 countries identified as front runners in their response to COVID-19 are led by a woman. Now, again, this is a small, small sample size, right? But if we look at organizations, we also know that research indicates company profits and share performance can be as close to 50% higher when women are well represented at the top. There is a massive organizational advantage, a competitive advantage when we have diversity and not just gender in our senior leadership positions. But what the problem is, is that we don't promote that way, right? And one of the interesting things is if you look gender specifically, men in the UK uh, think that childcare is getting in the way of their jobs, despite the fact that women are three times as likely to take that, that role on during the lockdown, right? Women uh, in healthcare hold 70% of, of the jobs globally. In fact, 90% of nurses are women. And yet when you look at leadership within the healthcare, only 25% are leaders. As many as 2 million women are considering leaving the workforce due to challenges created by COVID-19. 2 million women, and women, especially women of color, are more likely to have been laid off or furloughed during the COVID-19 crisis. Meanwhile, and you look at that bottom point there, Black women already faced more barriers to start with, 
and we're coping with disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on black communities due to a whole number of factors, which I won't get in here today. But again, we have to think about this when we're talking about leader, who are we actually preparing to lead? Because one of the things we often do is we promote people based on their expertise in a specific area. But oftentimes that area is not people. That area is they're really good in accounting, so they must be able to manage people or, you know what I mean? They're really good in research, so they would be great in, as a leadership and the, the head of that department, or they're really good at this. But what we have to focus on is who's going to be a good leader of people, because there's a real distinction between managing in times of peace and leading in times of crisis. Right. And that distinction is really, really important. And there will be different leaders for different times. One of your jobs, again, as the leader right now, is to know your people and to protect them. Know who you can call on when a time of crisis happens. Know who you can call on when something needs managed. But protect those people. Protect that diversity at the top because it is a competitive advantage. I want you to understand this is not something I'm saying just to feel nice and to get caught up in the moment. This is a competitive advantage, whether it's academia, business, or otherwise. Having diverse voices at the table leads to better results. We've got to figure out who those voices are and protect them and promote them into positions of leadership because they're good with people, not just because they're good at one specific thing. And that's really, really important. So. Uh, fourth thing, now this one's a big, big, big one, and uh, I could do a whole three hours just on this because there's just so many examples, and unfortunately, many of them aren't great, but that's okay, right? Clear communication. So a couple of things that, uh, that I've personally learned um, through this but have also been reemphasized by others is how we get to trust. Now, if you look at the Edelman Trust Barometer, I'll let you look at that just for a second. Uh, and I would like you to focus um, on the two, the X and the Y, right? So trust is made up of two things, ethics and competence. And uh, if you look at the blue circle there, uh, unfortunately, based on the work that they've done, no institution right now is seen as both competent and ethical. That is not government, that is not media, that is not NGOs, that is not business. Um, some are more ethical than others, some are more competent than others. But trust by employees is really based on those two things. So when we think about communication, right, let's look at, again, go back to, to the global COVID study. If we look from April to July, here were people's main fears. And I promise, I know this is meandering, I'm getting to a point. This is people's main fears April to July. Here are their main fears in October. I'd like you to look at number four, government guidelines. Now, that wasn't even on the list, and it's up to number four in October. And part of the reason that is, is because of how we communicate and how we build trust and how we build competence, right? So much of building trust and competence is how we communicate. So when you think about building trust through ethics, some of you may understand where I'm going with this and Dominic Cummings, right? We know that there are ways that you have to build ethics and the way that you communicate it is critical. First of all, you have to be decisive. One of the things that happens sometimes is we waffle and we've seen this happen with governments and organizations is that, well, I don't know, we need to talk about it, we need to think about it, we need more time, et cetera. In times of crisis, we don't necessarily have that. We've got to be decisive, right? The second thing is you have to be transparent, don't lie. 
Be honest about where you're going. We may not be making the right decision here, but this is the decision we are making, right? And if we have to adjust, we will. You can't straddle the fence. And this is a really big one. Um, in times of crisis, you can't kind of sit on the fence and you know uh, decide, oh, well, for some people it's this and for other people it's that, or for some areas it's this and for other areas it's that. You have to make sure that you're on one side. It's kind of like racism. You know, you can't be a part-time racist and kind of dip your toe in every once in a while. You're either racist or you're not, right? And when we're making these kind of decisions, we have to make firm decisions and we have to be transparent about them. And then you have to hold people accountable, right? And so that means yourself as well. When you are leading, you make decisions, you make them bold and you make them, and then you hold yourself accountable and those around you. And this is really, really important. Because one of the things you know when you're communicating that message is that it has to be simple. We have to simplify the message. And, and here's the thing, if you think about this case right here, Marcus Rashford, right? The beautiful thing about his message in school lunches, uh, and by the way, the first day of uh, half term, which was yesterday, over 10,000 lunches were delivered because of his initiative, not because of the government, right? But because of, of, of his initiative and getting this thing going and then some of those decisions that were made. His message is very simple though, right? Kids need food, kids are starving, let's feed kids. He doesn't really go off on that. He stays quite positive. Despite all the hate that he sometimes get and everything, he keeps his message quite simple. And that's what we have to do as leaders. Here's where we're going. We're going to go together. Don't make it too complete, complicated. Keep it simple. And this is really, really important when we're talking about communicating what our decisions are going to be. The second thing is you got to be bigger. Now, I talk a lot about when I work with, with um, leaders about, uh, you know, how big they are already and how their, their one little action can have a massive impact. But, you know, inspiring online is just harder, right? Connecting online is just harder. One of the things that we talk about often is if you're teaching it, involved, right? You've got to be even bigger online during these times and it takes energy, right? But as leaders, as you're communicating, as you're talking through these things, you've got to make sure that you're even 10% bigger than you normally are because your people need that. They need to see it and they need you to be sure that you are leading the charge, so to speak. Repeat the message. Uh, one of the leaders I've, I've talked to quite a lot says over communicate, over communicate, over communicate and do it until you're bored of hearing your own voice. And I've also found this in a couple of my leadership roles because uh, as many of you know, sometimes people aren't going to listen. And I will tell you in one of my leadership roles within our department, I'm constantly saying some of the same things and people will be like, well, what about this? And we've talked about that 16 times already, right? But you can't get upset with them. You just have to keep communicating this simple message over and over and over again. Uh, and, other and sometimes other people act like it's their idea. That's fine, right? Just let them go. But as long as you're getting the message out there and you repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, that's really important, right? The final one here is listen, uh, because communication, right, is not just talking, um, but there are a couple things in times of crisis that are really important. So when you're making decisions, because some of these decisions are, becoming, are coming fast and furious, right? One of the things I try to talk about is listen with deadlines. So say uh, you're talking to your, your group of people that you're making um, these decisions with and you say, you know what, I wanna hear everybody's opinion, but I have to hear it by tomorrow at noon. 
or I have to hear it by Friday at one or, or whatever. But you can't tell people you want to listen and then give them three weeks when you have to make a decision in two days. Right. So making quite clear that I am my ears are wide open. I want to hear I want to take your feedback in, but I need it by a deadline is really, really important. The second thing is listen for suggestions. Uh, say, you know what? You're absolutely right. This isn't perfect yet. What should I do? But have everybody come with a solution or a suggestion as well as a problem. Right. And we know this um, just from work in general. Uh, any of you who are leaders out there, you know, it's so frustrating when everyone just complains, but they don't come with solutions. So you say, you know what, if you're going to have a complaint or you want us to go in a different direction, that's fine. But you've got to come with solution because in a time of crisis, we have to make these decisions even quicker. Right. And it's important that you have deadlines and solutions. Now, the third one comes from this book right here. Any of you are familiar with John Cotter's work? Uh, this is one of his books called Our Iceberg is Melting. And uh, one of the characters, uh, and, and this is a book about penguins whose iceberg is melting, and he goes through the eight step, uh, eight change process, eight step change process. And one of the characters in it is called Buddy. Now, Buddy is not necessarily one of the big leaders, but he is the guy who knows everybody. He's friendly. Everyone likes him. He talks to everyone. Everyone talks back. He's funny. He really gets along. Within your organization, who are your buddies? Who are the people that know everyone, that talk to everyone? Find those and let them help you. Sometimes that's through listening to hearing what's going on on the ground, but also sometimes that's through communicating your message out. It's really, really critical that you find your buddies within your organization. And again, you can't wait till the crisis to do that, right? You've got to prepare ahead of time. You've got to know ahead of time, who's my leaders, who's my managers, who's my communicators. Finally, listen more. So listen with deadlines, listen for suggestions, and then after you find your buddies, listen even more. It's really, really critical that we're listening. Your job as a leader and our job as leaders in this time of crisis is to be on the ground with the people. We have to be upfront. We have to make sure that we're bigger than they are in some ways. And we have to make sure that we're talking loudly and we're simplifying our message, but we have to constantly be listening too. And sometimes if we're honest and we have that ethics, remember the trust index, we're gonna tell them things they don't wanna hear it, but that's okay. As long as they know that we are hearing what they're saying, really, really important. Finally, the last little thing here, um, on you know, communicating is the power of story. Unfortunately, we know that the anti-expert movement is real. The anti-science movement is real. Uh, it's, it is what it is. Um, and many of those people, unfortunately, have a really loud megaphone that they like to shout with. So sometimes it seems like they're quite a bigger group than they are, but they're there. Um, numbers don't lie, but it's as important to make them a part of your personal story when you're communicating. Uh, I'll give you an example. Earlier, I threw out a statistic. 26% uh, of the British population calls themselves either slightly or very prejudiced, right? Now, what I would like you to do is I would like you to think of four of your colleagues. And I would like you to picture which one of those is prejudiced. Which one of those do you think is prejudiced? Think of four of your family members. Which one is prejudiced? You see, when I just say a number, it's like, oh, that's horrible. I can't believe 26% of the people are prejudiced. But when we start making it personal, now it hits because you realize that as you look around your workplace, one out of every four people is prejudiced. And that's really, really, really critical. So again, make sure when you think about communicating that you're thinking about the power of story. And that is so, so, so important. Because when we don't talk, 
when we get quiet, the silence is deafening for those who are being affected. Whether that's our black colleagues, whether that's our colleagues who are working from home and have kids um, and they're shielding their, their loved ones from COVID, but we have to be communicating and we have to make it personal. And this is really, really important, everybody. So please make sure that, again, we know the numbers don't lie, but unfortunately, because of anti-science, because of anti-expert, people don't listen to numbers, but oftentimes people listen to personal stories. So if you can communicate via stories, that can be really effective, right? Um, anyone know who this is? This is James Stockdale. Uh, he was a prisoner of war in Vietnam. And um, he was interviewed afterwards. He survived, uh, I want to say, eight years being a prisoner of war in um, a secluded cell all by himself. And he was interviewed afterwards. And, and one of the things that they talked about is that, you know, uh, during kind of in-depth interviews, they said to him, you know, who didn't survive? And he said, oh, that's easy. It was the optimists. Because the optimists always believe everything's going to get better. And then when it doesn't, and then when it doesn't, and then when it doesn't, they don't know how to handle it. So part of leadership is not just being optimistic. Part of leadership is retaining faith that you're going to prevail, but acknowledging the brutal facts of the reality. And we've seen that in COVID um, throughout the time is, oh, well, you know, just another month, just another two months, just another whatever. Um, I'm working with some leaders right now who are planning 36 months into the, into, uh, the future because of COVID and because they think that after this, there could be another pandemic. So again, it's nice to be optimistic and inspirational, but we also have to confront the brutal reality and be honest about that, right? That's really, really important. So here's the thing. You can be honest about it. You can talk about it. But if your actions don't match up, people will not follow you and you will lose your trust and you will be seen as incompetent. So this is really, really important. Um, I do a lot of work around diversity right now. Uh, because that's been my field for a long time. And especially right now, after George Floyd, uh, we are having, I'm doing a lot of work with corporates around racial fluency, right? And one of the things that drives me crazy is when I go on a website and I see a beautiful statement about how diverse they are and how much they believe in equality. And then you look at their board of directors or you look at their senior leadership teams or you look at the pay gap and you see that yeah, they say the right things and they're, they're communicating quite clearly, but there is no congruence there. And so I think it's really important that we understand that this is even more important to this generation coming up. Now, Generation Z is going to be over a third of the workforce in about 10 to 15 years. So if we're not prepared for that, and if we don't have this kind of alignment and this kind of congruence, we're going to be in real trouble because there is a growing expectation amongst them that their personal values are gonna be reflected within the organization they work. So then the question is, what are their personal values? Well, if you look at uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, we know that um, almost 40,000 uh, US-based Generation Zers or Zetters uh, have taken place in this survey and found that 88% um, believe that Black Americans are treated differently and treated unfairly. Now, here's the thing that's critical, right? This is the important part. The most important part about this, though, is that 77% of them have already attended a protest. So they are not just talking about it, they're acting it. And when they come into our organizations, whether that's our schools, whether that's our businesses, we have to understand that if we are just saying things, but we are not living it out in our daily life, they are going to notice and they're going to call us on it. And that is critical that we understand that congruence and that we're prepared for it. So 
Um, organizations have to do the work, right? You have to do the work. And I want to point this out. Uh, and this is one of the things that we've seen that has come has been become very clear that's unfortunate, right? Is that uh, organizations don't want to change until the law or the media get involved. Um, until you are going to, you know, get fined or or have a law come down on you, or until you're pointed out by the media, you don't want to get involved. Like I said, if you haven't been aware that inequality exists on a massive scale for the last 30 to 40 to 50 years, and obviously much longer than that, then you haven't been paying attention. And so our organizations have to be willing to make the change before law or media get involved. Because when they don't, it looks like they just want the headline, but not the responsibility. And I want to just pause right there again. Organizations want the headline, but not the responsibility. It's easy to make a statement. It's much, much, much harder to do the work, right? And so we see this over and over and over again. Um, don't make the statement if you're not willing to do the work. And sometimes that means, again, when we're talking about communication and being bold, I know one organization that when all this happened and, and uh, the, the murder of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter became this big deal, they deliberately paused. And people outside the organization were saying to them, you need to make a statement, you need to do this. And their reason was, and they said, they were very clear about this, no, we have internal work we need to do before we can make a statement. And so they started working internally to get their own culture fixed before they started doing, making statements. But very few organizations are willing to do that. They wanna donate money to this so they get the headline. They wanna put it on their website. We've got to make sure that we're as leaders willing to do the work, not just get the headline, right? The final thing, default to action. So if we look at the, uh, the data, again, um, our employees want us to speak up. They want us to speak out. They want us to speak up. They want us to take the lead. So reflection is good and it has a place, but you need to tell your employees, then I'm reflecting right now. Let's think through this. Let's work together to come up with our response. What we can't have is silence. And we have too many leaders who are silent. And they've just disappeared during this time. We have to speak up. We have to speak out as leaders. And sometimes that can be, again, delivering uh, hard information, the brutal reality. Sometimes it can be saying, we are working through this as an organization. We are going to move forward, but we're going to do it internally, not externally. Sometimes it's an inspiring message, but we have to speak up. Um, and this goes back to, to one of the, the phrases that uh, has come around a lot. Is this a movement or a moment? And when we talk about well-being, is this just, oh, I care about your well-being right now because we're in this COVID situation. But as soon as we get through with this, then I'm not going to care anymore. Because remember, people will, they will not forget. Uh, is Black Lives Matter just, well, because it's in the media right now? Or is this something that you actually really care about and want to move forward? Um, finally, understand mistakes are going to be made as a leader because you are decisive, because you communicate clearly, because you're willing to put yourself up there, you're going to make mistakes. That's, that's part of it. The more trust you've built by being transparent, the more trust you've built by putting yourself up there, the more patience the people following you will have. But it is important to understand that you can't be, I always call it um, paralyzed, right? You become paralyzed by perfection. You can't become paralyzed by perfection. In times of crisis, we're going to make decisions. We have to move. And then sometimes we have to readjust and recalibrate and reposition, and that's okay. But we have to be willing 
to stand up and make a decision and take a movement because the silence again is deafening for those being affected, whether it's COVID, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's any other crisis, absolutely deafening. So, all right, summary again, like I said, there's 18 things here. I'm gonna go through them quickly and then we'll get to some questions. Please, please, please go back to Slido. Uh, as you can see down here at the bottom, there's your code. Um, whoo, all right, here we go, 18 things. Anyone know what this says? Uh, anybody, anybody, anybody? This in Chinese means crisis. Now, the interesting thing about these two characters is that there are two separate characters. One of them means danger, but the other one means opportunity. And that is the word for crisis. That is how you write crisis. So if we think of what has happened in 2020, we can think about how horrible it was and we can ruminate on that. We can really look at this as an opportunity for personal development and for our own leadership development, but also for um, our organizations, whether that's schools, businesses, whatever. Uh, four opportunities I want us to think about. If we go back to what I talked about in January, right? The first one is health and wellness. One of the things we have to remember is that self-care is not a massage or a manicure. It used to be, but now it's putting boundaries and limits on your own behavior, like a parent would, right? So part of what we have, we can't talk about how much we care about our employees' health and wellness and well-being and all that stuff if we're not willing to put some boundaries on their workload. If we're not willing to say, you know what, we're not going to have meetings after 5 p.m. here. If we're not willing to do some of those things as leaders, then, then don't talk about health and wellness, right? Again, health and wellness, it used to be that kind of self-care was, oh, I'm going to go to the to the spa for the weekend or whatever. That's not what it is now, not in these times. What it is right now is making sure that you're setting limits. The second thing is flexible workspaces. Again, we talked about this at the start of the year, but it's up to us as leaders to make sure this stays normal. We have to be very, very careful that if we get back to a normal, uh, the, the old normal situation where people are coming into the office every day, that those aren't the only ones that are gonna be promoted that those aren't the only ones going to move up the chain higher because a lot of the times the people that need to work from home are the women, right? They're the ones who are going to be disproportionately affected if we make people come into the office. And so it's really, really important that we think about that ahead of time. Third thing, diverse workplaces, again, whether it's disability, whether it's our black colleagues, whatever it may be, uh, gender, you, you pick your diversity, that makes the, it's a competitive advantage, right? The research shows it over and over and over again. So there's a real opportunity for here to, to us to embrace this as leaders. Finally, uh, collective intelligence. Um, we have to continue to enable conversations by inviting everyone to the virtual room. One of the best things that we've seen um, in inside our department, but also some of the people that I've talked to is they've said, there's just so much more discussion now because not only one person can talk, right? If you're in a chat room, everyone can put in their thoughts. Everyone can put in their ideas. And that's really important. So those are the first four quick hitters. Here we go. These are really, really fast. So I hope you're ready. Number one, stop being a martyr and get some sleep. Take care of your damn self. Uh, sleep, exercise, eat right. Uh, you know, we're all busy. We're all tired. Just because you get enough sleep, you're probably still going to be tired because of the amount of stress. Stop being a martyr, get some sleep. Number two, you don't do leadership, you practice it. We all practice it, we fail sometimes. I fail all the time, uh, but again, you have to continue to try. You have to prepare and continue to work. Three, do your own work. You gotta know yourself. 
Uh, I've seen a lot of leaders in this book that have been exposed. They've been really exposed because of the stress. Uh, so much, uh, this is a quote from one of uh, the leaders that I work with. So much of what I'll do moving forward has to do with myself because they are looking at me and I have to make time to think me through. And I think this is just absolutely critical. You've got to know when you need to step away and take a couple of days without meetings to recover. You need to know when you shouldn't be on a call because you're not in the mental space to handle it and let someone else handle it. You need to know when, where your weaknesses are. Are you a manager? That's okay. But figure out who those buddies are, who those communicators are, but you've got to do that yourself. Four, slow down. It seems counterintuitive because we want to rush, rush, rush and everything around us is rushing, but slow down, find your space and then communicate why you're slowing down right? You don't, you have to make decisions. You have to be decisive, but sometimes that can be, we're going to make a decision on this, but we're going to make it next Friday after we've had a week to think. We don't want to rush into things. We want to be decisive and move quickly, but we don't want to rush. Two very big differences there. How are you planning for crises and what crisis are you planning for? Just think there's going to be another one. So plan for it, right? Realize that your leaders and peace are not your same leaders in crisis. We talked about this before. Identify who those people are so that you can use them in the appropriate ways. Skills around the leadership table, what do you need? Know this ahead of time, right? And I go back to that quote earlier. If you haven't prepared, then you haven't done your job as a leader. You've got to make time to think strategically and prepare. Finally, and the last one here uh, on this little list is you cannot fix everything. As leaders, you can't. But what you can do is communicate well and lead through the brokenness, right? There's a lot of people right now that are broken. There's a lot of systems right now that are broken. And that's okay. You're not going to be able to fix everything. But what you can do is help lead people through that time, right? So finally, here were our six things that we started with. Uh, the way that we do that, the way that we lead through brokenness is we prepare. We realize that people are the job. We promote based on people skills, not necessarily on... Um, uh, you know, academic skills or uh, contextual skills for a job. We have to communicate clearly, understanding that we can communicate all we want, but if we're incongruent in our actions, it won't matter. Congruence to our actions is critical. And finally, always default to action. Always default to action. So with that, uh, please, please, please throw something in Slido. Um, so Danishta can take that. There's the code again. I am going to stop sharing my slides. And thank you all so much for participating. Participating or participating? I don't know, either way. Uh, we're back. All right, so we've got some fantastic comments. Everyone's really loved the, the lecture. And personally, myself, got lots of notes there. Um, we've got a couple of questions, actually a lot of questions. So I'm just gonna try and see the ones that have upvoted the most. Uh, one from, I hope I'm saying your name correctly, Doncha in Ireland. Um, she I says, love my Irish peeps. I was there. I was there in uh, January speaking with a bunch of leaders, and they're brilliant. So I actually, I actually know Duncha. So this is great. Oh, great! And she says, "Fantastic keynote, Zachary." Um, how do we get more teachers in schools to avoid the default setting in their mindset to work during pandemic? So many want to keep doing things the way they have always done it. Mm -hmm. Well, so again, I, I, I go back to part of what has happened here is. Um, people have been some, sometimes have been forced out, right? They've been forced out. And so some, some what, we're, what we're actually seeing in our department is that some of those who have been forced out now are actually really enjoying it. 
But I think one of the things that I uh, talk about when I teach class, and it's just it's just a, a human characteristic, and I think this is really important. Uh, and I mean this the most loving way possible. So if you're out there listening, please please hear me on this. Uh, 10% of people are crazy. They're just crazy. No matter what you do, they're going to be negative. They're not going to want to change. They're going to find a problem with it, et cetera, right? But what do we do as leaders? What do we spend most of our time? We often spend most of our time on that 10%. What we need to do is focus on the other 90% because you've got about 50% who are gonna, gonna go with the tide, but you've probably got 20 to 30% at the top who are really willing to make change. Focus your time and energy on them because it's that old saying, right? A, a rising tide raises all boats. So if you will focus on those who want to make change, if you'll give the resources, the time, the energy to those people who are really doing the great work, then that's where you need to focus. You can't focus on the 10% who are just gonna be negative anyway, right? So really focus on those who want to move forward. And I think that's critical. That's a really good point. Um, I will definitely be taking that on board personally. <laughs> Yeah, and it's hard um, to do that because it's easy to get caught up in the negativity. Uh, but but we spend so much time on that, and we we can do better if we focus on the people who want to change. Take the people with you, don't focus on the people at the bottom. That's a very good point. All right. So there's a there's a comment, and then there's also a question. So there's a, it's a two part here. So someone has said, people skills are never valued when selecting for leadership positions. I've seen this over all of my career, some of which has been in HR. So lots of interventions. Oh, I'm sorry, there's so many things popping up at the moment. So I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> so lots of interventions needed after appointment. And the question to follow that is by Toyin. Um, organizations are overwhelmingly led by European males, despite there being a paucity of talent and strategic thinking in this group. How do we change this and find leaders who value people um, and well-being over profit, intellect over charisma? How do we secure gender, ethnicity, and age diversity in recruitment? So, yeah, I think, I think these are great questions. And what I'm hearing for, if I can kind of put those two questions together, is how do we actually put this in action, right? Um, and I have actually developed what I call a pyramid of power, so to speak. And there's some very specific things. I worked with a, a, a colleague and a, a great friend on this. Um, and it's a pyramid of power that I work with organizations on that kind of shows at each step how you can build these people into the pipeline, whether it's recruitment or training or retention or promotion or any of those things. Um, but let me, let me come back to just one of the things that we see already. I'll, I'll go to two, recruiting. Um, if the organizations are just recruiting from the Russell Group, then they're missing out on a massive pool of talent, right? Um, go outside the Russell Group to do your, some of your recruiting. Go spend time at some of the more diverse campuses. There is so much talent there. And again, you can't think of it as, oh, well, we don't have the resume from UCL or Cambridge or Oxford. What you think of it is this is a competitive advantage, right? And so this idea of recruiting outside the, the normal channels is really, really, really critical. And again, I've got some very specific things on that, but I don't want to go too in depth. I want to move to the next question. The second thing is once they're in the organization, right, how do we promote them up? So there's a few things that we can do. I'll, again, I've got a checklist. I'll just go through one or two of them. Number one, right, is the first thing you have to do is you have to collect data on why people are leaving, Right. So if you know where your stop gaps are, so if you say, oh, well, we've got lots of talent down here, 
but it just doesn't ever make it to senior leadership positions. Where's that stopgap? So then we have to attack that stopgap, right? And there's some very specific things we can do about hiring committees and promotion committees and all that stuff, but we have to find where that gap is. So organizations have to find, have to use the data, right? They have to use the data within their organization. The second thing though, and I think this is equally important, is we have to make sure that we're giving the right people a voice at the table who are not just the right people based on their color or based on their gender or any of those things, but based on their training. We have to train people who are on those promotion committees. We have to train people who are on those retention committees and not just the kind of training that we've done in the past, right? We have, there's new ways that we can train these people. So it's bringing the right people, to, it's identifying the stop gaps, but then bringing the right people to the table when it comes to both hiring and promotion that we have to do. Uh, because again, there, there's lots of skills out there, but if they're not coming in or once they come and they get stuck, then we're not doing our jobs as leaders. Very good point. Um, all right, I have one which kind of ties in very nicely to this uh, by Marlene. If I have a leader who is silent, how do I encourage him or her to speak up? So again, uh, it depends a little bit on what the leader is being silent about, right? But uh, I think, so there's, again, it is, so much of this is contextual. It's contextual based on industry. It's contextual based on situations. There's, there's all kinds of factors. But I would say, um, I think one of the things that's absolutely massively important to this is that you have to have a relationship with them. You have to be out, have that conversation with them. And it has to be honest. And they have to be willing to hear it too, right? Because it's okay to go and say, you know what? I know that people need you. To, they need to hear your voice right now. They need to hear your leadership. You know, we, we need to hear, we need your direction right now because whether you want to be in the leadership role or not, you know what I mean? You're there. So we need to hear from you. And then again, this goes back to finding the buddies. So even if that person is not the kind of charismatic stand up in front of the audience and speak, how can that person work with the buddies in the organization, the communicators in the organization to filter that out and, and have them say, you know, this is coming straight from the top, y'all. I talked to you know, Sheila, the CEO or whatever, whoever the CEO is. And this is coming from her. We need to make sure we're doing this, even though you might not be hearing it from her, you know, in the meetings, this is where it's coming from. So I think the first thing is having honest conversations with them. And the second thing is if they're still not comfortable and willing to take a stand, then we've got to figure out who our buddies in the, in the organization are. That's great. Um, I'm aware of time, so I'm just going to ask you one more question. And this is more of a personal one for myself, but I think you, you spoke a lot about, you know, participating in the conversations and leadership. But I want to take you back just one step from what you said in the beginning um, about young people having or wanting the inalienable right to participate. Um, so why should they be part of that table? And is that going to affect leadership? Uh, well, again, they should be part of the table because it's, it's, a, it's a competitive advantage. Uh, we have to stop looking at mentoring as this kind of thing we do that's altruistic. You know, I, I have people in my life that I mentor because I learn so much from them and they give me so much and I gain so much, right? I have mentors that I look up to and the relationship is very much reciprocal. So, uh, I'll end on this because I got one minute. I talk about having five people at your table, right? And I always make this, if you had a major decision to make in your life as a leader, who are you going to invite over to dinner? You've got two hours to discuss it. You get to invite five people. Number one is a mentor, someone that is older and wiser than you are, right? Number two is a mentee, 
because these mentees are going to ask questions that you might not think I hadn't even thought about that because it's been so long since I was in that situation. That honest, simple, simple questioning can be really, really important, right? So you've got your mentor, you've got your mentee, you've got to have someone who doesn't care about your professional life at all, who just cares about you. This is usually a family member, a very close friend who will say to you, that sounds great, but that doesn't seem like you. I understand the salary is really good, but are you going to be happy going to that job every day or, or doing that job every day? You've got to have someone who is your hero. Now, when I say your hero, that doesn't mean that you necessarily know them. It could be an author you like. It could be a religious figure that you follow. It could be any number of things. It could be Oprah, right? Like whoever it is, though, if, if Oprah was sitting at your table, what would she say in that situation? And the final one is you've got to find someone who is the, as far opposite as you as possible. So if you are a white Christian male like myself, I need to find a diverse atheist who is uh, either gay or female, or do you see what I mean? Like I've got to find someone who's the exact opposite of me because their perspective on life and how they've lived is so different. So if you have those five people at your table, it's not because you're just trying to include them. It's because it's good for you. Right. And so it also just builds us and enriches us in so many ways. So uh, I would say you need to be at the table because you're valuable and that's really important. That's a great point. So I know we've come to the top of the hour. So I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for joining us today. And that's everyone who's been watching and hope you enjoyed the talk. I'd also like to give a big thank you to Zachary for joining us today and for sharing with us some amazing insight. You will receive an email in the next day or so with a short feedback survey and also the upcoming schedule of lectures. We hope to see you um, at another lecture soon. Stay well. Thank Thanks you. Thanks so much.